the light around. Rather impressive. That's our one trick. Um, The truth is most animals respond to light. Uh, Cockroaches hide from the light. Uh, Lizards uh, bask in the light. Uh, Moths hover around the light. Uh, There's this response to the light. Well, the truth is uh, people have all different responses to the true light, the light of the world who came down into darkness. That's Jesus Jesus, the light of the world. And, and people across the globe have all these really different responses uh, to that light. But we're introduced to the light in, in John 1, and he simply says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came living in such purity and such integrity and such brilliance, and people did not know what to do with that. And then he came doing good things. You'll notice these are are the ways we interact with the world in our essential series. He came doing good things. We see in Matthew 5.16, he invites us to do the same thing, of let your your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We do good things in Jesus' name, and and God gets uh, glorified. He came also proclaiming Good news. Luke 2, describing, uh, describing Jesus who would come, it says, He'll be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he came as the light of the world, and there were all these different responses. Last week we saw that not everybody welcomes Jesus. <laughs> There's some wildly different responses. And I think the truth is, Our response to Jesus is most revealed when things get intense. How we really relate to Jesus comes out. So Mark, uh, kind of the setting, last week he records several episodes of Jesus going around being good, doing good, and saying uh, good news. And uh, and people responded to that. So today we have kind of a summary uh, passage of his ministry as it has uh, developed. You know, it started in Galilee region, and now it's really picking up uh, speed, so to speak. And if you could, if you could say uh, one word to describe the summary of the development of Jesus' ministry, you might say uh, intense. It's getting intense. So this morning, we'll look at four different ways that Jesus' ministry is uh, getting more intense as we see the narrative, uh, Mark's narrative. And how this relates to us today. Then we're also going to look at the three different responses people had to the intensity of his ministry. And it's rather similar to our responses to him today, even inside the church. So we will be in Mark uh, chapter 3. We're going to spend time in verses 7 to 12 today. If you're following along in one of those pew Bibles uh, in front of you, it's on page 838, I believe. But we'll start in, in the verse before, at the end of last week's passage, verse 6, just kind of set the, the context for what's happening. Verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this was the religious leader's response to all that Jesus was doing is they thought, how can we get rid of him? So verse 7, And so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So the first way 
that Jesus' ministry is getting more and more intense as we get to this part in, in Mark is that the opposition to his ministry is intensified. Well, Mark, by placing these stories right back to back, kind of alludes to the connection between the plot against him and the pulling away. But Matthew's passage actually makes it um, explicitly clear in Matthew 12, uh, 14, talking about the same thing. He says, but the Pharisees, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And so this conflict is welling up. Jesus uh, pulls away, not because he's afraid of conflict, but it wasn't, it wasn't time for, we might say, the, the showdown <laughs> yet. So the goodness and good news of Jesus was drawing out uh, opposition, and it came from really unlikely places, the, the religious leaders. Why, why in the world was that where the core of the opposition against Jesus was? The, the religious conservatives. Mark shows this developing uh, conflict that begins here and it, and it rises through the whole book and ultimately climaxes with the crucifixion of Jesus. They murdered Jesus because he was going around saying good things and doing good things. Just outrageous. It, here's where it really begins. Goodness and good news still draw out opposition. When we go around talking about the gospel, when we go around doing um, good things in Jesus' name, it's, uh, people start forming an opinion about that, including opposition. If your faith is totally a private matter, which our culture likes to uh, push it into that box, then nobody really cares what you believe. It's like, well, what, whatever you believe in your own head is fine. Don't, don't let it leak out in conversation. <laughs> then it becomes a problem. So we see that the opposition to Jesus' ministry, it starts really ramping up, so much so that he and his disciples pulled away to, uh, by the sea. But uh, everybody followed them there. <laughs> so we see next that the expansion, kind of the, the scope of his ministry uh, also uh, intensified, picking up in the middle of verse 7. And a great crowd followed from Galilee, and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So we see this impact is, is huge. It starts spreading all over the greater uh, regions there. From down south, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, uh, east beyond the Jordan, uh, north and west to Tyre and, and Sidon. So people are coming from the capital city, from the boonies, from Gentile territory, everywhere to see this guy Jesus and what he is about and what he is doing. And the result is there's all different kinds of reactions because now Jesus cannot be ignored. Well, still, because Jesus told us to, Jesus' followers are taking the good news and the good works to the ends of the earth. We're we're really trying hard to do that. Um, this little church in this little town, First Baptist Church in Cambria, is trying to send missionaries to the far reaches of the world. Here's some of our, our missionaries from, from the lobby here. Um, we have missionaries in Asia and North America and South America, the South Pacific, languages uh, in Spanish and Tagalog, Bengali, Hebrew, Portuguese, sign language, the tribal language the weeks are going to that doesn't, don't even have a written language yet. So uh, we're, we're trying to send people 
to the ends of the earth. This is happening today. The, the ministry is expanding. And as ministry of Jesus expands, it forces people to make an opinion about him. It forces a reaction. Until now we are seeing whole governments, whole cultures deciding what they are going to do with Jesus. We see policies being made. We see cultural movements uh, based on the question of what will you do with Jesus. So the intensity just keeps going. The expansion of the ministry, it keeps happening. But not just the scope, the wide-reaching effects. We see the actual activity of ministry just keeps ramping up and ramping up. This is, uh, it's like a frenzy here in our passage, uh, starting in the middle of verse 8. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of this crowd, lest they crush him. You know, it's a mob. <laughs> For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So you get this idea, all these people, they're sick, and they have all these problems, and they're just throwing themselves at Jesus, and it's just this big mob uh, scene happening. And uh, it's this frenzy of activity. Uh, the church still today can be a frenzy of activity. I bet I could wallpaper this whole uh, room here with the ministry opportunities that come across my desk. You know, the different ways we could be involved in this or that or this program or that program. There's, uh, there's no shortage of activity in the church today because there's no shortage of needs there's, there's hurting people all, all around us, right, in this room and things we're going through and think, people that need encouragement and people that need just help in general. And that's not to mention the people that are your neighbors and the Cambria and California and our country and the world. There's just so much to be done. There's so much activity because there's so many needs. And it can be just completely overwhelming. Well, when activity ramps up like this, lots of goods being done, good news is being shared, we're bound to also see that spiritual conflict is intensified. Uh, verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they saw Jesus, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. The, the wording here, like, like the verb forms, are these repetitious kind of words. Like they kept seeing him whenever this kept happening all the time and they kept falling down and they kept crying out. It's like this regular scene that there was a spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict whenever Jesus came around. And how he responded to it is he silences them. Verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Kind of... Um, and aside here that we'll see more as we get deeper into Mark is this strange thing happening. Jesus comes and says, uh, I, basically he comes and presents himself to the world. Here I am. I'm the Messiah. See me. I'm the light of the world. And then he goes around. He'll heal people. He's like, don't tell anybody. And then the demons say exactly who he is. You are the son of God. He's like, hush, don't say anything. And so it's this really weird tension of he is, uh, he's presenting himself as the Messiah, but he doesn't want anybody to know he's the Messiah. It's like, it's really weird. And sometimes uh, commentary, commentators will describe this as the messianic secret, and there's kind of some reasons this is probably going on. I'll just suggest some of them. W one is um, the demons were a really poor uh, 
character reference to be the ones to say who Jesus is. <laughs> it's like, I don't want that kind of PR. Well, the devils, they know who I am. Um, maybe that's part of it. But really, I think a big part of it was protecting against these false expectations of Messiah. So there was culturally this idea of what a Messiah would be. He'd be this uh, military hero that comes in and saves him from Rome, you know, rides in on the white horse and, and, uh, and leads an army into battle to rescue the people. Well, Mark shows us that Jesus came uh, to die. <laughs> he came to, to suffer. And so Jesus seems to be uh, keeping people from, from connecting him with that kind of Messiah image. I think there's some other things going on too, but I sort of want to just save that for later in Mark. But I just want to say that the spiritual battle is still, still real. And when ministry is really happening, uh, that's when we see spiritual conflict come out. Whether it's some of the things you hear on the mission field of just really overt uh, spiritual warfare, or, or it's just here we have a, a really uh, high point in ministry and we, we follow that up with just feeling like some discouragement or, or random temptation that just broadsided us or, or conflict in the middle of a ministry team. It's like, where does this come from? Well, there are real live forces of darkness that really hate when Jesus is proclaimed. <laughs> When Jesus comes to town, when Jesus, uh, the good works of Jesus and the good news about Jesus are being proclaimed. So spiritual conflict intensified wherever Jesus went. Okay, so why is this all uh, important? Why does Mark uh, take the time to explain the development uh, of this, etc.? And why am I taking the time to talk about Mark doing this? Um, I, I think it's because what's important is that intensity reveals your relationship with Jesus. So Mark draws out how people have different responses to Jesus. Even those who um, are close to the action, so to speak, we might say, even those uh, in church, or even those who are religious. So I want to take the rest of the time just to talk about three attitudes toward Jesus that they had in the gospel account and that we have today uh, as well. And I want you to think about uh, which one are you? <laughs> which these tends to characterize your, um, your stance toward Jesus. Well, first, we have the scribes who really were self-righteous uh, judges. The scribes of the Pharisees, uh, they weren't even participating in what Jesus did. They Now in the story, we see them further and further just in opposition to what Jesus is doing. Remember that the scribes of the Pharisees, they were the keepers of morality, the religiously conservative, the students of the Bible. Um, I think a lot of us would describe ourselves that way. So we are in a particular danger of falling into the kind of traps that the scribes of the Pharisees fell into in that day. Their posture toward spiritual things was this. They sit in judgment. The scribes of the Pharisees look at the scene and sit above it and evaluate and are full of skepticism about what's happening. Um, when I was in, uh, when an, in undergrad, there's a guy um, in a couple of my classes. His name was Dan, and he would often fall asleep in class. And he would wake up uh, with these words, well, I don't know about that. He'd wake up with a, with a comment of opposition, and he wasn't even following the discussion because he'd been obviously napping. Um, but he just had this, 
this uh, demeanor that like, no, I don't think so. No, that's not right. Uh, even out of a, uh, of a fairly sound sleep. So the scribes, I don't, I don't know what his, his heart disposition was to Jesus, but I just bring that up because sometimes that's, that can be our disposition towards spiritual things. Like, nah, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know. Oh, it didn't come from here. So, you know, there must be, must be something wrong with it. And so they don't want to change. They don't need Jesus because they're already okay. Their, their motto would be, dig in your heels. <laughs> Just drag your feet. We're not, we're not changing. We don't need Jesus. In the middle of religion, they were relationally distant from Jesus because they thought they were already okay. That was the basic problem. I've been to, uh, I've been sitting in the soft chair, the soft couch, I've been in counseling uh, a few times, and that's what that's supposed to represent. And uh, although I don't remember it being that cozy, but um, uh, I'll just tell you briefly about a couple of times. I won't tell you the details of the situation, but um, once was in college, in seminary, I took a class that was called something about um, soul care, spiritual formation, or something like that. And the idea is to get seminary students that are just, uh, all they're concerned about is theology, is to help them think about their soul. What a novel thought. It's a really great idea. And so the, these classes focused on that. And part of that class, they, they, had, they required us to go to a session um, with a counselor, um, partly so we could see what it feels like to sit in the on the couch instead of the chair, you know, feel the other side, um, but also just to, to take a look at our soul with somebody else. Well, um, I did that, and uh, I had nothing in particular that I was coming to talk to the counselor about. It was, it was an assignment, and so it was really awkward and, and boring, and um, it's like, well, what do I do with this? Like, I, I, I'm fine, you know, are you okay? Uh, what would you like to talk about? Like, I don't know, this assignment. Um, and so it was really a pointless experience. Um, at other times, I've been in counseling where I knew I needed it. And I hung on every word of the counselor. I'm like, I'm going to do whatever this guy says. That's a totally different kind of a situation because I knew that I needed help. When the other time, I just was showing up because somebody told me to. Well, this is like the church. If we come to church thinking we already got it figured out, we're already okay, my, my good things I'm doing, my, my giving, my involvement, my moral code is going to just get me just fine, and we don't come with open hearts to Jesus, then we are the scribes of the Pharisees, living in a world of, of skepticism and hard-heartedness, even though we live right in the middle of the religious world. This happens in the church when we come when, with this attitude of, I already know the answers. Uh, I'm already right. I'm already okay. And it leads to this pride and skepticism, this judgmental, petty, uncharitable, unprofitable theological debates. It leads to legalism. All these kinds of things spring out of that attitude of the scribes of the Pharisees. A little later in Mark, Jesus addresses these guys, and he quotes Isaiah, and he says this, this people, quoting Isaiah, but talking to the scribes, this people honors me with their lips. They know all the right things to say, but their heart is far from me. Don't, 
ever let yourself get in that place where you're going through the motions, but your actual heart is far from Jesus. Here's how this uh, happens, or it can be a subtle difference that is, uh, is a world of difference. Um, think about the spiritual habits, the things that are meant to foster our relationship with Christ, like, um, like regular time in God's word, um, a habit of prayer, a habit of, of worship. We can do all those things as scribes. We do it, we check it off the list, and it makes us feel better than the other people around us. Like, hey, I, you know, I have my 100 days straight on my reading plan, or, or I prayed like twice as long as you today, or whatever it might be. And it puts us in this, in this um, place where we feel like we're in a good spot because we've done it, and especially a good spot because we've done it better than somebody else has done it. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be in because those habits, the intent of them is simply to place us in a posture of being close with Jesus, a conversation with Jesus, learning about him, talking to him, depending on him. That's what those are for, not to stand in a judgment over someone else. So you can follow the rules and know the answers, but be distant from Jesus. And that was the problem with the scribes of the Pharisees. So there's a second uh, kind of person that Mark talks a lot about. This is the crowds. Well, well, the crowds are portrayed really as kind of self-centered consumers. And this comes out clearly in this passage especially. They came to Jesus only for what they could get. <laughs> um, Jesus, well, he's the, you know, he... He's, he's got the goods. We'll come get him. If I need healing, uh, that's, we heard he could help out. Their motto might be, uh, just grab it and go. You know, get what you can. They're not concerned with getting to know Jesus. In fact, they were trampling on him. You know, hey, maybe if I just stepped on him, I, my foot would be healed. That was that kind of a, an attitude going on. They, they weren't concerned with getting to know Jesus. They weren't concerned with Jesus' message of discipleship. They were only concerned with what's here for me. Uh, some of you know that we, uh, with the youth group, we, for a number of years, uh, we went down to Mexico and built houses. Um, one year, we, we did a different kind of trip down into Ensenada, where we did some vacation Bible schools and some other kind of projects. We actually went with, with my uh, youth pastor, the guy who was my youth pastor. He was probably maybe early 70s at this time. Well, we decided to go out to this migrant uh, worker camp and, uh, and have a pinata and then we were going to do some other things as well. But we got the most enormous Blue's Clues uh, pinata and stuffed it with maybe 50 pounds of candy. It was just a monstrosity. Um, this, is exact, this, isn't, this isn't it, but you know, this kind of represents, this is how I remember it. Um, and we strapped it across. We had these wires from two different buildings, and, and we, were, we were pulling on this thing. And, uh, and PJ, my youth pastor, was down in the middle of it. And just mobs of kids, you know, the whole community was there and when that thing broke open they went on there just like a mob and the bigger kids were kind of trampling the younger kids some and so picture this uh 70 something year old uh man uh literally grabbing these kids and just hucking them off because because they were trampling on the younger kids and it, it was a scene uh worth seeing uh there's a couple of us on the roof filming and i'm just like just keep filming because this is going <laughs> to be good. But it was like this frenzy. Well, the kids weren't, weren't there uh, because of this tenderness toward, toward Jesus. Um, they're there because 
we rolled in with the giant blues clues uh, stuffed with candy. And so sometimes that's the same kind of mentality we have, but we're more subtle about it when we, we come to church. Okay, what can I get out of this church experience? Uh, let's check out this church. Do I like the music? Uh, is there something for my kids? How, how does the potluck rate compared to the other churches in town? Is there a men's ministry, women's ministry? Is there easy parking? You know, how good is their visitor swag that they give out? Um, do the sermons make me laugh or cry or feel warm fuzzies or whatever it is you want from a sermon? Are they the right length? You know, there's all these things we, we kind of, you know, it's like, this is what I want. I want this. I want that. I want this. Or maybe we come because we have something messed up we need fixed. Um, or we're hungry and we, we need food, so we come to the church. It's fine, but don't stop there. Uh, our youth group, when I was in high school, we would sometimes go to the rescue mission in San Diego, and we'd do a service, and then, and then they would serve a meal. And the protocol was um, they'd come down and, uh, and take off everybody's uh, headphones because they had, like, the Walkman or whatever there because they'd want to just listen to the Walkman during the service, and then, but they had to go to the service to get the meal. And it was this very, like, this for that kind of a, kind of a relationship uh, we're, we're much more subtle about it when we, when we do it in church. What can I get out of this? How can church fix my marriage, fix my finances, fix my body, fix my loneliness, whatever it might be, and not just coming to encounter Jesus? Do you have a what can I get out of this approach to Jesus, church? Like you'll stick, along as long, stick around as long as you're getting fed or as long as you're moved, as long as you're amused or assisted. Then, then we're being like the crowds who are just self-centered consumers. But here's something I found really interesting. Mobs of people came to Jesus for selfish reasons. And what did Jesus do? He gave them exactly what they wanted. Even if that's not primarily what they needed, he also gave them what they needed. But here on this occasion and many other occasions, he just did for them exactly what they felt was what they needed. They came, they were hungry, and he fed them. He, they came, they were, they were sick, and he healed them. They, they were oppressed by demons, and he, he cast the demons out. Really interesting. I'd never really thought of it that way before. But as I looked, why did he do these things? Why did he do these healings and feedings, etc.? Uh, the chapter, a couple chapters back, why did he touch the leper? Because he was moved with pity. That's what it says in Mark 1. He, he had compassion. He felt compassion for this man. So he healed him. Even though the leper's real problem was that um, he needed his soul taken care of. Why did he heal the sick? Well, Matthew 14 says because he had compassion on them. He came in, Land of the boat, there's all these sick people. Uh, instead of getting back in the boat, he stayed and he healed them all because he had compassion on them. Why, why did he stick around and feed all the hungry people instead of sending them home? Matthew 15, 32 says, because I have compassion on the crowd. Let's, let's feed them. Let's stay and feed them. So Jesus, because he loves people and because he has a big heart for uh, human affliction, the problems that we face, he meets our needs. So at this point in ministry, he made it 
uh, at this point in ministry, he, um, he just gave the people what they wanted. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it by that. It sounds even strange to say it. At other points in the ministry, he did make it clear what the true cost of discipleship was. And the crowds got a lot smaller at those points in ministry. But we see that Jesus was always full of compassion, routinely ministered out of compassion. And who did he bring in to help? The disciples. This is the third kind of people that Mark talks about. Uh, I really hope we all want to be this kind of a person because the disciples, they're self-sacrificing servants. From about chapter 2 of Mark all the way through the rest, we see the disciples are with Jesus all the time. Verse 7, our passage today starts out, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, they're like this circle of people that are just always together. The, the disciples were the insiders. They were part of the Jesus circle, sometimes people call it. I, I want to be part of the Jesus circle. I want to be on the inside. Interesting, the scribes who were so religious, who, uh, you know, at a glance, they would seem like the most religious people around. Um, they were outsiders. They were not true disciples. They didn't even show up for this event. In fact, Jesus was kind of trying to get away from them. They were relationally distant from Jesus because they didn't think they needed him. And then the crowds, well, they were outsiders too. They were not true disciples. They were relationally distant from Jesus because they just wanted what they could get from him. But the disciples were partners with Jesus. They were part of the Jesus circle, uh, sharing in his life together. They were eating together and walking around together and staying in the same home together and doing ministry together. They, uh, they were giving. They just, the disciples just gave what they had. What did they have? Well, they used to be fishermen, so they, they brought their boat. That's what we have to offer. What did, they, what did they do? They served. They just did whatever Jesus told them to do. That's what, that's what disciples do. The needs of ministry can be overwhelming and intense with all the hurting people that are around us. But the motto of the disciple is, hey, let's roll up our sleeves. <laughs> let's... Let's do something about these needs. Let's, let's meet that, that hurting person's need. Let's, let's fix this problem. Let's tell the good news to those who are, who are lost without the good news. Does it seem overwhelming at times? Yeah, there's a lot happening. I appreciate the, um, the spirit of, of Gimli in Lord of the Rings. I haven't made a Lord of the Rings reference in a while, so I thought it was time. Uh, I, think they're, I think this is when they're getting ready to march on the Black Gate, and he says, certainty of death? Small chance of success, what are we waiting for? And uh, let's do this. Let's just march into this. But, but for us, we're actually guaranteed victory. The kingdom of God's going to grow like a little mustard seed that's planted, and then it grows um, as big as uh, a plant that birds can land in. And I think of that often because we're infested with mustard plants right now, and, and sometimes I do see birds perched in those, those plants. Um, it, the kingdom is growing just like that. And in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We, we're going to win. Jesus' kingdom will go forth. And so this is not a futile cause. So our attitude needs to be just to roll up our sleeves, get in, do something about it. So what does this mean in the church? What I mean is, what does this mean when we show up at church on a Sunday morning? Um, we come with a lot of different agendas in our mind, whether we know it or not. And sometimes our agenda might be, oh, I got this thing that happened to me this week, and I just need to tell somebody that story. 
And so you find somebody to tell that story to. Yeah, that's fine. Or maybe what you really, uh, I need to sit in that particular seat. Uh, I'm not trying to get on anybody in particular. Or I need to express this, this opinion. Or I need to do this. I need this. I need this out of this experience. Instead of the disciple disposition that says, how can I serve? What can I do? Um, I'm in this conversation with this Betty telling him my story. Like we were telling fish stories this morning, Justin and I. He caught a fish, and I caught a fish this week. But still, we caught fish is all I'm saying. Um, and we want to talk about, you know, this kind of story. But meanwhile, we need to have our radar open up and on for people who uh, are alone or people who are hurting or people who have been through a difficult thing and come to this place to minister. Who needs comfort? Who needs welcomed? What needs to be done? This really shifted or I, I just saw this uh, come out when um, I'd done ministry as a career, so to speak, for a while. And then I went and attended a church just as like a regular person attends church. And it was this, whoa, this feels really different. And I realized how easy it is just to kind of show up and, and let them kind of do it for you. And, uh, and like, hey, you know, I'd give them, you know, seven on this or whatever. You just kind of evaluate it and just kind of experience it until it's like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And then when I started serving, the sense of ownership really ramped up. And I see a piece of trash at the church. I'm like, well, I'm not going to wonder where the jander is. I'm going to pick up that piece of trash and throw it away or whatever it might be. I'm going to take ownership of that. I'm going to, in my neighborhood, I'm going to be uh, on the lookout for who needs encouragement, who needs to know about Jesus, who needs prayer. In the world, I'm going to think, what, what can I do in my life right now to help uh, spread the good news to the ends of the earth. How, how will I do that? And as we think about all these things, I think our question should be, what, what are we waiting for? Let's, let's be disciples. Because when things just really ramp up and get intense in the church and in the world, it really reveals what our true disposition is toward Jesus. Are we sitting in judgment over Are we just wrapped up in what can I get out of it, or are we in there to serve? In the church, there's some who are self-righteous, some that are self-seeking, but true disciples are self-sacrificing. And so I think this is our challenge for all of us. It's to simply invest yourself for Jesus. Not how can I sit uh, up above and look down on this i always think of the guys on the muppets show that's probably the same vintage as the sea monkey era um the some of you maybe two of you know what i'm talking about the guys who sat up in the in the little peanut gallery and just criticize everything uh don't be that don't be just the crowd trying to get whatever you want but but come and just say jesus what can i what can i give you <laughs> how can i invest myself for eternity um what are we waiting for? As uh, Jennifer and Noah come back up, uh, let me just pray for us.